You know, it's interesting for those who uh, maybe have followed Jesus for a while, you begin to realize God's sovereignty as he puts pieces together. So uh, Brandon and I have not talked about where I'm heading per se this morning, but what you just prayed uh, is exactly kind of where we're heading. This idea of our hearts being prone to worship, but worship what? And so if... Uh, from last night, just, just a quick recall. We, we covered a little bit of this idea of the re reliability of our Bible. And, and the reason I started with that, for some of you, it seems kind of out of place. Like, why would we do a bibliology message at a fisherman's conference? But we are living in a culture that has rejected truth. And so to, to understand that the Bible that we do have is a reliable document and the foundation of truth as revealed by God in special revelation, uh, it's important for us to understand the truth of the text, and we talked about the theme of the Bible, right? Creation, fall, redemption, recreation, restoration. I mean, that's kind of what we're looking forward to. Uh, the reality is we're kind of living in this awkward middle. We'll talk about that awkward middle a little bit more tomorrow, this idea of uh, those who've trusted Christ, there's eternity sort of that we've embraced of eternal life that we might know God and Jesus whom he has sent, uh, but there's also this waiting for one day we'll be with him forever, and so we're sort of stuck in this middle ground, and we talked about this idea that in Genesis, in chapter one, you've got the creation of humankind, man and woman, created. Important to hear this for a moment, by the way. It's Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Have you ever wondered why God speaks of himself in plurality? Let us make man in our image. I thought God was one. It doesn't teach Trinity, but it certainly allows for it, which I think is pretty significant. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. He created them male and female. Now that's worth noting because we're living in a culture that's even forgotten about that, maleness and femaleness. And Adam and Eve seem to have been created with what some theologians call relative holiness. Like if you read the, the Genesis narrative early on, they're, they're spending time with God uh, in a very intimate and close relationship. And so scholars have called that relative holiness because God can't have any relationship with sin, but sin was not even present yet. And so they're in the garden with God, and then came chapter 3, the original sin of humankind, uh, where Satan challenges God's word, God's justice, God's love, and God's design for human flourishing under God. And what we said last night is those patterns that we saw in Genesis 3 are passed on now uh, to us. The sin of Adam and Eve plunge humankind into sin to what some scholars call pervasive depravity. Simply means that the image of God is not fully erased, it's just defaced. Meaning we don't lose our worth, value, or dignity as, as humankind uh, because of sin. Our worth, value, and dignity comes that we are created in the image of God. However, because of sin, now we are separated from God, and that image is defaced. And so even today now, uh, we're dealing with this issue of the presence of sin in the flesh. And uh, the Bible's going to have two sort of stances as it comes to how do we deal with our shared inheritance of sin. Uh, one is in the flesh, meaning on our own strength, by our own will, on our own power. The other is in the spirit. And the gospel comes to play in there and, uh, and what God does through the gospel to set us free from the mastery of sin, to fill us with the spirit and give us new life in Christ. But the question I want to sort of deal with is what does it look like to deal with sin, the presence of sin that we all share in common in what the Bible calls the flesh, meaning on our own power and our, of our own will, how do we manage sin? Because in the flesh, you can't deal with sin. You, you can't take away sin. You can't remove sin. You can't be good enough that sin no longer impacts you. 
That, that is just gut-level honest truth. So what we're doing in the flesh, apart from Jesus, what we're doing in the flesh is managing sin. And what are some of the ways that we manage sin in the flesh? The first is, is kind of a category. I'll call it impulsivity. And what impulsivity means is when we do what we want to do without any thought of why we're doing it. So if I were to, to toss you a ball and I'd say, throw it back to me, you would catch it and you would throw it back to me with whichever hand is your dominant hand and you wouldn't think much about it. That's impulsivity. Impulsivity is where you, you act, you react based on longing, desire, urge that comes very natural to you. You don't even have to think about it just like throwing that ball back to me. There's a, there's a couple of things that show up in impulsivity. The first is called autonomy. We have a natural, impulsive, it comes very easy to us, move towards autonomy in the flesh. What autonomy means is a willful rejection of God and pursuit of self, where we do what we want to do when we want to do it because we want it. That's, that's uh, autonomy. Galatians 5 says this about autonomy. It says, the deeds of the flesh, which is autonomy, are evident, they are Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and my favorite, and things like these. As if to make sure if you've got a vice in the flesh that it's not left off of the list. That is autonomy, where we live life directed by self, driven by urge, driven by desire. You probably know someone like that if not looked at the mirror at someone like that, maybe even this morning. Uh, this is someone who uh, chooses uh, to do life apart from God, chooses to do life on their own based on whatever they feel is right, whatever they want to do, they do it. That's autonomy. We come about that naturally, trying to manage sin in the flesh. The second, as it relates to impulsivity, is what uh, Brandon referred to uh, is idolatry. So we were created by God to live in relationship with God, which meant we were created to worship something or someone. But if you're in the flesh and the gospel is not a part of your life, then the question that we have to ask and answer is, then what are you worshiping? If you were hardwired to worship something or someone, but Jesus is not in your life, therefore you're not worshiping God, then what are you worshiping? And boy, we get super creative. Think of it this way. It's like God created you with a hole in your heart. And you've heard the expression, don't put a round peg in a square hole. There's a certain size of that hole in your heart that only God fills. That's the way we were created, this way Adam and Eve were created. But because of sin, we're separated from God and that hole now is void, it's empty. But we don't like the feeling of it being empty. We don't like to feel, we, we know something's wrong. We just can't quite put our words on it. We're just like, something's not quite right. I need to fill that void. And here's where we get super creative. Um, we dive into our careers. I would say, if I could just be successful, then I'll be satisfied. I'll feel whole. If I could just get that promotion, I'll be satisfied and whole. If I could just get to that next bonus level, I'll be satisfied and whole. If I could just make that money, I'll be satisfied and whole. If I could just buy that boat, I'll be satisfied and whole. If I could just buy that house, I'll be satisfied and whole. If I could just, if I could just, if I could just. And what you're doing in that moment, though you may not have had words for it, is you're trying to fill that hole with something that hole was never meant to be filled by. You're shoving a round peg in the square hole in your soul that only God can fill. 
And we get creative. It's career, it's wealth, as I mentioned. It's also relationships. Um, It's also your family. Uh, It's also um, success. It's also approval. It's also how you look, the style you have. You, You name it, those are the things that we're trying to fill that hole with. And if that's you... I just want you to think about it for a second. If that's you, how unsatisfying is that? Because the irony is nothing that we worship in this world will ever satisfy like only God can satisfy. Which is why, by the way, one one of the first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol in the likeness of what is in heaven or above the earth or beneath the earth, in the water or under the earth. It's God saying, look, don't, don't worship idols, you're going to be prone to worship idols, but don't worship idols. They will, never, they will never satisfy. So that's impulsivity, where we do what we want to do because we want to do it. Romans chapter 1, by the way, speaks to this. Remember, the Bible interprets the Bible. Tell me if this sounds familiar regarding an impulsive per- person. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness because... That which is known about God is evident within them, and God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's speaking of what we talked about last night, natural revelation. God has revealed himself in creation so that we are without excuse. That there's something in our hearts that's missing, there's something, we have a longing and, um, and God has revealed himself, but we are suppressing now that truth in unrighteousness. We are rejecting it, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I don't know how you feel when you read the news, and, I, and I'm listening to the news, and, uh, and, and I'm realizing that, that people in authority and power are having a hard time articulating what is a woman. I find that very fascinating. It's not that hard. She's a biological female. I mean, that, that she's able, therefore, to give birth, etc. But they don't want to touch that. Why? Because they have become futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged now the glory of the incorruptible God for the image or form of corruptible man or things of this world that we would worship. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see idolatry in this text? When we reject God and try to fill that void with anything but God, we profess to be wise, but really we're becoming fools because the things of this world will never satisfy. And in so doing, God gives us over. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Yeah, worshipers of the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, blah, 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 a whole list of other things. And he says uh, that although they knew the ordinances of God and those who... uh, Although they knew the ordinances of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do they do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's life living um, in impulsivity, all right? But there's another way, not just impulsivity, 
in terms of doing what we want to do. The other is a little bit more sophisticated, where the impulsive person is the person who's the indulgent person. Maybe you know somebody like that, or they just kind of live by whatever they want to do that day. The other is called the compulsive or compulsivity. This is the person who does what they feel they should do. This is the good person. Now, the good person deals with sin, manages sin through a number of ways. The first is called moralism. Moralism. And what moralism is is striving to be good based on your own will and your own will alone. If you have a Bible, Genesis 3, 6, we covered it last night, but I'll I'll read it to you again, is the moralist. Listen to Eve now dealing with the idea of managing sin on her own apart from God. It says this, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make her wise. So she took from it and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. That's moralism. Moralism is where she knew the ordinances of God, but said, you know what? I don't think I need that. I think I can handle this on my own. I think I can take care of this myself. That's moralism. One of the evidences of being a so-called good person. This is the person who, when it comes to managing sin, tries hard to be good, Um, tries to be moral. If there's sin in their life, they try to stop it. They're going to make good New Year's resolutions. Um, They're going to be better. When they're caught in sin, because you are managing, you're not dealing with. So when you're caught in sin, these are the people that say, no, baby, I'll, I'll do better. I'll work harder. These are the folks who, um, who claim that they can control it. If there's anybody in here who's working through recovery, one of the first things in recovery is to realize your life is unmanageable. But an alcoholic who's not willing to handle recovery says, no, 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 I, I, I drink a little bit, but it's not, it's not that big. It's not out of control. I can manage it. That's a moralist. The second, though, issue of compulsivity is the tendency that we have, like Adam and Eve, to cover sin. So in Genesis 3-7, the eyes of Adam and Eve are both open. They finally realize that they are naked. So they do a fascinating thing that we still do today. It says they covered themselves with fig leaves and they made for themselves loin coverings. One of the tendencies of compulsivity is to move now to cover sin. Why do we cover our sin? We do so because of shame. We know something's wrong. We can't articulate what's wrong, so we just try to cover it that you might not see it. What does covering look like? It's where you minimize sin in your life. It's where you normalize sin in your life. You justify sin in your life. Um, There's nothing to see here. What's happening here is very normal. Everybody else is doing this. And so we, we, simply, we simply explain it away. These are the people who, uh, who would claim that, you know, what you're doing is not hurting anybody else. So it's not a big deal. Everybody else is participating in whatever behavior. So it's fine. I heard a guy say one time, he goes, well, yeah, I mean, every guy looks at pornography, right? I was like, No. But if, if you're a moralist or if you're living in terms of a tendency to cover and compulsivity, then that's what you say. Yeah, yeah, no, everybody does this. So what I'm doing is okay, even though you know it's not, and because of shame, you try to hide it or you cover it rather. All right, so that's the tendency to cover. There's also, though, in verse 8, a tendency to hide. And so you'll notice in verse 8 of Genesis 3, uh, they, Adam and Eve, hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, they were just in perfect union with God, enjoying intimacy with him. And you kind of get the idea that in the cool of the day, the morning it seems maybe, that they're looking to enjoy 
or expecting to enjoy the presence of God as they had been previous. And we have no idea, by the way, how many days, weeks, months, years have gone by. The, the text doesn't give us a chronologic timestamp, But we do know that it seems like the normal way of relating for Adam and Eve was to enjoy God in the morning or in the cool of the day. But now it says that they hide themselves from God. Now, for those of you who understand a little bit theologically about who God is, that's really stupid what they're doing. Because God is omnipresent and he is omniscient. He's everywhere and knows everything. And here they are playing hide and go seek from an omnipresent, omniscient God. It's very foolish. Why did they hide? Why did they feel like they had to flee from God's presence? It's, it's the presence of guilt. They had a tendency to hide because of guilt. Guilt is a little different from shame, both of them negative motivators. But what guilt says is, man, that's not right. You need to get that off of you. Get that to somebody else. So guilt deflects, it blames, it runs away. Um, this is the person, by the way, when I was an um, well, elementary school kid, uh, one of my best friend's dad had Playboy magazines. They weren't in the living room, of course. They were stashed in his closet. That is the tendency to hide. So he had them, and he looked at them, but he at least had the sense of um, guilt enough to put them where nobody else would find them, nobody else but inquisitive elementary school kids who we obviously found them. Um, and so it's, it's indulging, but doing it in secret, all right? So here's the problem with compulsivity in general. Whichever form of compulsivity you're experiencing, whether it's moralism, the tendency to cover, the tendency to hide, is um, it doesn't deal with the presence and power of sin. You're managing something. It's like, it's like in some ways if you, uh, I don't know, let's say you're driving down the hill and you find a baby cougar on the side of the road. And you're like, oh, it's a kitty. So you just take the little cougar and you put it in your truck and you drive home and you go, hey, wife, hey, kids, I, I found a baby cougar, but it's cute. And so you just fed that cougar and, you know, that cougar's really cute and purrs and we tickle its belly and it plays with stuff and it's great. But that cougar's going to grow up and eat you all. That, that's the issue of managing sin with uh, compulsivity is it, is it never really deals with the issue. And the issue doesn't get smaller the issues always get bigger. Have you noticed that with sin in your life? It starts, the first lie is always the hardest. The second one gets a little easier from that. The first hit is always the hardest decision. The second and third get easier from that. The first look is always, do you see what I'm saying? And the issue then is, as we try to manage sin with compulsivity, it never deals with the power and presence of sin. And that little baby cougar keeps growing until at some point that thing that you thought you could manage is now managing and destroying you. You with me? That, that's life in the flesh. The other thing that happens, by the way, with compulsivity is we begin to live a double life. So these are the guys who, uh, and I mentioned last night my concern for other pastors um, who are in similar sort of spheres of influence or similar tenures, is what happens is a pastor especially, or a leader or an elder or a deacon or whatever, uh, feels the need to look a certain way in public, and so they power up. They, they, they power up personality, they power up godliness, they, they, they power up a different vocabulary, and they in some ways perform according to the expectation. Because remember, compulsivity is you do what you think you should do. So you're operating out of a sense of obligation to expectation. The problem with that is the more you power up, the more that shadow side grows. Which is how, by the way, the number one use of pornography 
throughout the year in hotel rooms is pastor's conferences. Why? Because you're performing, and the more you perform, the more the shadow grows. If you walk in light as he is in the light, uh, that shadow begins to dissipate. And it's not just pastors, it's guys like you as well. This idea of trying to manage sin, perform, live a certain way, that, that persona is exhausting. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like a religious treadmill. You're just busting your butt. You're in another Bible study and another prayer group, and you're, you're trying to manage it. You're not in the spirit. You're in the flesh trying to manage sin, and it just becomes exhausting. Now, in the midst of this passage, though, God, by his grace, in verses 9 through 13, gives us a picture of his grace for us. It says, then the Lord God called to the man, and he said, where are you? Now, I don't know what your parents were like. My, my curfew was 12 o'clock. Dad said nothing good happened after midnight. I think he was right. Um, but when I would come home late, he would ask me the question, where you been? Now, there was always the wonder back in the day because technology wasn't the way it is today. So I, I knew he couldn't quite stalk me like I stalk my kids. Like, I can tell you exactly where my kids are. I, you know, like, like, I can ping their phones. I know where they're at. So if, if you don't know that technology, come talk to me. It's fantastic for raising teenagers. But back in the day, that technology didn't exist. But when he asked me the question, where you been? It was a question, is he fishing for information or is he fishing for a confession? And I'm not quite sure I can tell in the moment. Did he know or did he not know? Well, did God know where Adam and Eve were? Knew exactly where they were. He's not fishing for information. He's already omniscient. So what's he fishing for? Confession. Does he get it? No. Adam says, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, which is the way they say it in the South. So I hid myself. And he says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now that is a simple question. Did you eat from the one tree I told you not to eat from? The, the, the appropriate answer would be, and, and the answer you would want from your son would be, yes, sir. Yes, I did. That's not what he gets. He says, um, oh, it was the woman, actually. It was the woman. In fact, he goes on, it was the woman whom you gave me. So it's not my fault. It's probably her fault. But if it's not her fault, it's probably your fault. He says, um, it's the woman whom you gave me. She gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God says to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me. Do you see how they deflect? That's life in compulsivity. But God's gracious, and he pursues them in this moment. Now, do we see this issue of uh, impulsivity and compulsivity elsewhere in the Bible? Yeah, to a very familiar story, Luke chapter 15. Listen to this. It says, uh, starting in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of my estate or of your estate um, that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went to, on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his, uh, his state with what this, my translation calls loose living. It's a very kind way of saying it. He blows it in Vegas in the red light district, all right? And uh, now that he had spent everything, severe famine hit the land, uh, and so he began to be impoverished, and so he, he went uh, out and hired himself. He ends up feeding the pigs, as you know the story. He came to his senses and says, how many of my father's hired men have more uh, than enough bread, um, and I'm going to die here of hunger? So he, he goes back home, and he, he uh, 
sort of creates the speech he's going to tell his dad, and, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son, et cetera, et cetera. Well, as he comes to his father, verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Can we, can we acknowledge that the son, the younger son, living impulsively, doing what he wanted to do because he wanted to do it, experienced something he did not expect from the father? He's expecting to get shamed, probably like my dad would have had a conversation with me, maybe like yours would have had a conversation with you, if you came home after blowing your estate in the red light district in Vegas. And yet the father saw him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. It's a break of protocol culturally. The patriarch never ran, certainly not to a son like that. And the assumption in the text to the listeners is uh, God the, the father being the character of God, God should not love the impulsive. They deserve what they got. God should love the compulsive, the good brother. And keep reading. He says, um, verse 21, he says to him, uh, the son starts the story, the father interrupts, kill the fat calf, bring out the robe, put the ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Uh, for the son of mine who was lost has now been found. They began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing, but he did not go inside. See, the older son is the compulsive son. He's the good son. He's the son who's managed his behavior. He's willed himself to be right. He's dealt with sin in the flesh. He's got a handle on his business. He's controlling stuff. He's the good son. Therefore, he's deserving of God's favor in his mind. He sends now a servant in, begins inquiring of these things, how, how it could be. And he said to him, uh, your brother, the father says, your brother... Uh, has come, um, excuse me, the servant said, your brother uh, has come now and your father has killed a fat calf, received him back, safe and sound. Um, but he became angry, the older son became angry and was unwilling to go in. And his father came and pleaded with him, like, look, our son is, uh, my son, your brother is found, like, this is a good thing. And, uh, and the older son says, yeah, but he devoured your estate with prostitution and you've killed the fat calf for him. Verse 31 says this, and he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that, I, uh, that all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he has now come to life. And the older son's response in this is he says, look, for many years I've, I've been serving you. I've been with you. I've never neglected any commandment of yours and yet you have never killed a young goat or thrown a party for me to celebrate with my friends. He's the compulsive one. Now, the story is called the prodigal son. What does prodigal mean? Prodigal means um, lavish, um, beyond scale, something over the top. And we, we tend to read the story, and we call the story the story of the prodigal son because we're focused on the younger brother because we think that impulsivity, you should get what you deserve, but the father gives him the opposite. But we fail to recognize that the story is really not about the prodigal son, but about the prodigal God. Because what the prodigal God does is invite not only the impulsive son into his grace, but tries to invite the compulsive son into his grace. Both sons, impulsive and compulsive, are dealing with sin in the flesh. And both of them, the father's like, no, we should welcome them in. We should celebrate that which was lost, but is now found. And thankfully, I would just say, we, we have a prodigal God. A God who who pours out grace upon us lavishly. Listen to the words of Jesus. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. He says, it's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. 
It happened while Jesus, Mark 2, was reclining at the house that many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they followed him. Jesus surrounded himself with the impulsive and the compulsive, the indulgent and the good person, so-called good person, and invited them all into his presence. Uh, And the beauty is that this is part of our dealing with sin in the flesh, that there's none righteous, not even one. All of us are managing sin, apart from Christ, managing sin with one of those coping mechanisms. So here's the question I would just have for you. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, which one of those apply to you more? And even those who are in Christ, don't get it twisted, we can be in Christ or in the spirit and still indulge in sin management by the flesh. And so maybe which one of these apply to you as well? Is it autonomy? Are you just seeking to do life apart from God? Is it idolatry? Trying to shove lesser things into your heart to make them ultimate things? Is it moralism? Striving to be good for uh, or on your own will? Is it a tendency to cover because of shame? Is it a tendency to hide because of guilt? And if that's you, can I just invite you out of the exhaustion of the religious treadmill and into what Jesus called his easy yoke? Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gentlemen, we were created to live in relationship with God. But because of indwelling sin, both by nature and by deed, we are separated from God. And if the theme of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, we are in need of redemption. Now, you may not have thought that. You may not have considered that. Uh, you may hear this concept of indwelling sin and say, well, I don't, I don't think I believe that. Yet you, you don't have to believe in gravity either. That doesn't in any way diminish its reality in your life. And I don't say that to disrespect you. I simply say that to say there, there are truths and realities in life that we just don't want to hear. But that doesn't make them less true. The truth is, gentlemen, we have to deal with this issue of sin, either in the flesh or in the spirit. Let me close with Romans 8, and it'll set up where we're heading tonight. Romans 8 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are now according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot have a relationship with God. The only way to have a relationship with God restored is to be in the spirit. How are we in the spirit? That's the work of the gospel in our life, both at a point in time and over time. We'll talk more about that tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, a journey down the compulsivity and impulsivity of our flesh. And Lord, if we are trying to manage sin with anything other than the power of God that is in us, the spirit of God that goes before us, Lord, could we boast in our weakness that in that your strength would be confirmed in us and not simply try to manage our sin but confess utterly our need for you, that we are desperately wicked. And we need Christ in our life, both at a point in time and over time. So for the men who are here who have yet to trust in Christ, who are still in the flesh, God, could you show them the same hope of a prodigal God who meets the impulsive and the compulsive together and invites us into the easy yoke that is found in Jesus. And we'll thank you in Christ's name.
Amen.